Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of In the Know with Cat Bobino. Today, my guest is super, 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 super special to me. We went to undergrad together. We started grad school together. I couldn't handle the heat, but she did. And so I want to welcome to my show, Dr. Chanel Adams. How are you doing, Dr. Adams? I am good. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being on the show. So... Can you tell us what you have your PhD in? So I have an earned doctorate in food microbiology. Okay, so what exactly is food microbiology? So if you break it down, it's pretty much what it sounds to be. <laughs> a study of <laughs> a study of microorganisms um, in the food aspect, and essentially what that means, um, what my job entailed was determining the rate of which microorganisms, primarily bacteria, pathogenic uh, microorganisms, are able to survive in a food system. And at what level does it become detrimental to a consumer? And when can we stop detecting its presence? Okay. And so that's very important, right, when it comes to the FDA, uh, to all the foods that we consume. Uh, Is there a big difference between... um, canned food and uncanned food? Um, In terms of difference, I think if you look at canned foods, it's primarily no big difference. Um, When vegetables are canned, they're picked at the peak season of harvest um, and gone through a process so that the freshness is maintained once canned. One of the things um, in previous years that was of a concern was in pathogenic organism known as Clostridium botulinum. And if we look back in a day to where our grandparents were making jams and jellies and preserves and canning their own food, what they were doing was not using enough heat or pressure to kill the bacteria that may be present in there. And it was causing a huge huge level of outbreaks um, from those because this microorganism particular can grow in anaerobic environments are those environments that have no oxygen present. Um, And once it gets into a human body, it becomes detrimental, clogs Mm. their um, throat, prevents breathing, induces suffocation, and can ultimately kill them. Oh, wow. So back in our grandparents' day when they were doing this to have food for, like, the winter or to give out as a holiday gift and take the food that they have and preserve it, they really weren't doing it the best way, is what you're saying? Um, primarily, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the, the joy of science. It evolves, an understanding of it rather evolves over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing what they knew. And at that time, it's not that millions and millions of people were dying from it, but there were an increased incidence um, during that time as compared to now. Okay. That's very interesting. I did not know that. I have a neighbor down the street. She she is a great-grandmother, and she has a plum tree, and so she gives me plum preserves, and I eat it like it's just nothing. So <laughs> now, now I'm thinking about it like, dang. You know, I could have <laughs> I could have had a problem with that. You're fine. You don't fall into that category. A lot of the threat with um, food poisoning, food intoxication, um, there's certain groups that become more heavily at risk. And so, so I'm if guessing, you're a child or right, immunocompromised or elderly. Or elderly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just, I don't even know if you heard that story, but recently, I think it was in California, 
um, a group. They took a group of elderly people to dinner for Thanksgiving, and they got food poisoning. But because they were elderly, the dehydration really affected them, and then they ended up yeah. passing away. So, yes, for the audience, I think a lot of times stuff like this is for the very, very small or those who have an immune comp- compromised immune or they're the elderly. So, okay, so let's move on. Um, where did you go to get your Ph.D.? So for my doctoral studies, I attended the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, um, not too far away from University of Connecticut, where Kat and I both were yes. for our master's studies. Mm-hmm. I couldn't handle it, though. I don't know how you was able to handle it. Being from California and then going to college in Alabama, like, I love the heat. I could do the heat, but the cold... Oh, no, man. I think it's, it's determination. Yes. That's all it was. Mind over matter. Never did I expect to stay on the East Coast. So in my mind, I was just, okay, just tough it out for a few years. You can go back home afterwards. And then you didn't. You left us. I you... did. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't come back. But that's okay. We love you anyway. But, yes, so can you tell us your experience at uh, UConn and uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst? Like, how was it going to these schools, getting your master's, getting your Ph.D.? At first sight, it was intimidating, (laughs) and it was challenging. Um, Oftentimes, we hear of this term called a double minority, where, one, I'm a woman in science, and secondly, I'm black, right? African-American. Um, So my transition to UConn was a bit challenging, I think, because, as you know, we both attended Stillman College. Mm -hmm. So going to a historically black college, being in an environment where everyone pretty much understands your background, your culture, your upbringing. Mm -hmm. And there's a mutual sense of respect. And transitioning from there into a predominantly white institution or a PWI was a bit challenging, um, getting the strange looks um, or the feelings of not wanting to study with you because I don't think you're as smart as I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so just kind of taking those challenges and seeing them as, you know, if anything, motivation. Because for me, you doubt me, I'm going to give you a reason mm-hmm. to doubt me. If that's anything right. else, I'm going to prove you wrong. Right. And that's exactly what you did. You stuck it out. You got your master's. You got your PhD. Was that, was, did you see, or did you have a similar experience at UConn and UMass with that? At UMass was a bit different because my program was much smaller. Um, going into UConn, I think it was a bit intimidating for me initially walking into a classroom that holds 350 students. Mm-hmm. Um, but while at UMass, the food science department is more um, intimate. You get more of that kind of one-on-one feel. Classroom sizes were maybe like 20 students, 25. So it brought back a sense of being at Stillman, my undergrad. So it was a bit more comfortable. Um, And I think because the students, there's a high international population. So it's just the curiosity of, well, I want to learn about your culture. Let me learn about yours. So there is more of a friendship that was forged. Okay. Okay. And so what made you go from, uh, because I know at UConn we were studying microbiology. 
but then you went into food science. So what made you transfer from microbiology to food science? It was accidental. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what happened? I what was the accident? I didn't know anything about food science. Didn't know it existed. Uh, my primary goal was microbiology. Mm-hmm. Um, but the research that I was doing while we were at UConn looked at um, biofilm formation. And in that aspect, we were looking at, from an oral perspective, the microorganisms that grow on your teeth can sloth off, migrate down to the heart, and lead to heart attack. Um, so my interest had really grown in studying biofilms. And as I transitioned into the University of Massachusetts, um, my doctoral advisor, um, Lynn McLansborough, her research focus was on biofilms, but she looked at it from a food perspective. And one of the major concerns in the food industry is um, equipment that's utilized in manufacturing and the different types that commonly come into contact. Mm -hmm. And those bacteria can attach. And a lot of times these um, sanitizers aren't strong enough to break them apart and clean them. Mm. So going from oral biofilms to industrial biofilms, there was still an interest there for me. Okay. So um, let me see if I got this correct. But you were starting to research now for your PhD uh, the biofilms or the bacteria that could grow on instruments that were used in food processing. Correct. Okay. And so taking that from a grand scale to a small scale, uh, how would you equate that to people in their homes, how they handle their food or how they handle any of their equipment when it comes to food preparation? Like, did that, like, go, like, break your mind open, like, dang, I need to do better at home while I cook and what I do? I think the most interesting part to me during my studies was um, when the question is posed, what do you think is the dirtiest place in your house? Mm. And if that question was asked to you, Kat, what would your response be? I would have to say the bathroom. Exactly. That's what I would think. Right. One of the most filthy places in your um, house is your kitchen sink. Oh, my God. Okay. The drain. That's right there. And that's where a lot of these biofilms were forming in food processing facilities. When you look at the runoff or the wash after they sanitize the drains that are on the ground, the bacteria can really harbor right there. And so when you go into your kitchen, if you're cleaning your meat or you're washing vegetables, the runoff is going right there down your drain. Right. And so... Is, so what do you do? Should you, like, bleach your drain or, like, periodically? Like, what should you do to make sure there's no buildup? Because I'm about don't to do this when I sensitive. get home. Huh? I said just don't get overly sensitive. I'm about to be like, ah, when I get home, I'm about to be pouring, like, half a thing of bleach down the drain and kill all that biofilm because I don't need that. No, I think it's fine. I mean, I think when you think of a household... Um, kitchen, you're not really throwing things down your drain. You're not pushing carts by it to try to spread it right. um, throughout the facility. You're not walking across it to track it through your house. Right. So it's just for reference on going from the large scale of being in a processing facility into being in your home. Okay. okay. So everybody, please don't feel like you have to go home and pour bleach down your sink. Yes. But I will say thinking about it, you know, I don't know how many people drop stuff down that that drain, you know, um, whether it's 
I've seen people drop forks, knives, you know, maybe even a ring and stuff. So thinking about it, like, you might really want to clean that. <laughs> Whatever falls down your drain, you fish it out. You really might want to sanitize that. Those are your words, not mine. Okay. That's me. <laughs> Take that from me. You don't have to do that. I'm just saying. Now my mind is all on that. I'm done. I'm moving on. So um, I know that at Stillman College, we studied biology. Then you went to UConn for microbiology and then UMass for food science. But what really got you interested in biology? Like when you went to Stillman, what made you want to study biology for your major? When I went to Stillman, I was the first in my family to go to college. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I knew absolutely nothing about a PhD. It was either you're going to be successful, you're going to be a medical doctor, or you're going to be a lawyer. (laughs) So for me, the trajectory of getting to med school meant I had to major in biology. Gotcha. So what changed your mind? Research. Ah. (laughs) So what was Being your in the lab. Yeah, well, so what was your research when you were at Stillman College? So while at Stillman, um, I don't know how many schools do it, but prior to graduating as a science major, you have to do a thesis project. Mm-hmm. Um, and my project at the time focused on the proteins that are expressed or not expressed in African Americans in its relation to hypertension or high blood pressure. And so for me, it caused me to wrap my mind around, you don't always have to be in a medical role to have an impact on the medical field. Right. And so having an understanding of the background, there are proteins that are actually expressed in our bodies or that have been shut down due to change in environment, change in diet. And I'm able to research why this is happening and what drugs can be produced or manufactured to help this issue within the community. Right. Okay. So you took that research. And so um, who did you do your research under at Stillman? With Dr. Lee Allen Agassin Jr. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell him that you used his whole name just, just now. Which is awesome. <laughs> but yes. So Dr. Agassin is who you did your research. And so uh, what I want to tell the audience, one of the reasons we went to UConn is because of Dr. Agassin and Dr. Washington. So at Stillman College, they were the ones who were um, doing the research and they were pushing people to go into research and their background was in microbiology. So when they had an opportunity to go to University of Connecticut and teach, uh, they took some students with them and asked, you know, do you want to come with us and learn and possibly get your PhD? So Chanel and I went. We were one of the first to go up there. Uh, Again, Chanel stayed. I did not. Um, But I just want to emphasize and ask your opinion, Chanel, on how that kind of changed your life, like having Dr. Agassin at an HBCU pushed you, and then him going to Connecticut, and then you going to Connecticut, like, how did that impact you? I am eternally grateful for that. Um, It's built upon a notion that each one teach one. Mm Mm-hmm. And because there was a lack of exposure, one thing that I can say that I've learned from them is ignorance is bliss. A lot of times we don't know 
because mm-hmm. we just don't know. But once someone is trying to tell you, you have every opportunity to succeed. There are no excuses whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And so it's that mentality that helped push me along to complete my PhD. There were several times where I wanted to throw in a towel. I wanted to go back home. Mm-hmm. But those two individuals, Dr. Agason and Dr. Washington, power couple, mm-hmm. search them. Yes, yes. <laughs> we love them to this day. I'm not even going to say what year we graduated undergrad because that's embarrassing. But yes, to this day, if you, I know Chanel and I, even some of our other friends that went to Stillman, like we will always be grateful to Dr. Washington and Dr. Agassin. Yeah. But I, I interrupted you. I think without them, I wouldn't have known what research was. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known the other avenues that you can take with a degree in biology that everything doesn't have to result in an MD. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also instilled in me the importance of reaching out to individuals um, and teaching them about the opportunities that they have. It was through Dr. Washington and um, at that time of undergrad, partnering with elementary schools and introducing science and, you know, just looking at you now and your path and mm-hmm. how your, you know, initiative is going strong towards giving back to the community and introducing the STEM or STEM, STEAM fields. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very, very important. And then because we went to an HBCU uh, and saw people like Dr. Agassiz and Dr. Washington, it was just like, okay, there there are African-Americans in science doing great things. And then, you know, we being at an HBCU, you meet other people at HBCUs. And so it was nothing, to me at least, to see a, a black person in STEM. Then to come home to California and talk about it, and I introduce myself, and I say, hey, I'm a biologist. I mean, you don't know, black, white, gray, they just like, I. you're the first black scientist I've ever met. And I'm just like, exactly. what? How? How? Have you gotten that experience too? Exactly. It's, it's far too common. It really is. It's far too common. And then it's just like, that's, I think, what really got me going into like STEM education because it's way too common where people will be like, oh. Or they're surprised. I don't know how many people I've met. And they'd be like, I'm a biologist. They'd be like, what? Oh, that's so cool. I'd be like, I, I I could throw a dime in my friend book and catch you a biologist. What are you talking about? There's plenty of us, but the reality is there's not. So It's that lack of exposure. It is a lack of exposure. So what do you think then is something we could do to help get exposure out there? I think the very things that you are doing. That um, I remember reading somewhere, I'm not exactly sure where, but it's, Science isn't introduced by the third grade. It's difficult to try to bring someone in. Mm-hmm. The interest just falls short. And one thing that I always tell people is science doesn't have to be elaborate. Mm-mm. You don't have to be in a laboratory. Nope. One of the things that I love to do with my mentoring um, group with the young girls is DNA extraction from a strawberry. All you need is a strawberry, some dish liquid, rubbing alcohol, and a sandwich bag to smash it up. Yeah. And at the end, you can see the DNA wrap around the loop. So it's things like that is, you know, retronasal activity. Take some cinnamon and sugar and mix it together. Clog your nose. Put it in your mouth. All you can taste initially is the sugar. Once you release your nose and blow out, then you can taste the cinnamon. And it's just that scientific aspect that sometimes the food we taste, we also have to smell. Right. Absolutely. And one of my favorite things uh, when I talk about science, I talk about all the time, is chemistry, even though I 
hated chemistry at Stillman College. <laughs> but yes, I hated it. But um, now I, I, as I'm older and I think about it more, I, I understand it better. But uh, cracking an egg, cooking. You know, cooking yeah. is nothing but chemistry. You're taking, you put an egg or bacon in a skillet. Um, what you're doing is you're adding a catalyst, which is heat, and you're changing one matter into a different matter. It ha- The matter itself hasn't really, you know, what it is, bacon hasn't changed. It's just you've basically cooked it. You've added a catalyst and you've changed it by adding heat. And it's like, that's chemistry, you know? It's right there. It's, Denaturation. Yeah. Right. It's, it's right there. But, um... I, it's what you said that's very true. Like, by third grade, in, I, I'm pretty sure it's a different article. It could have been the same article, but I read it. And um, <clears throat> one of the things is a kid, you ask them to draw a scientist or to, to describe it. You know, they'll think about an astronaut riding a dinosaur in a volcano. Like, their imagination is, is out there. But the school system, the way it's set up, and I'm not hating on school, is like, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And the more you just keep telling the kid, no, 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 that's incorrect. No, no, no. You kind of kill their imagination. And then they don't see themselves and stuff like that anymore. They don't see themselves going the distance. Now it's like, oh, I'm only good in this one subject. Let me do this subject. Right. Trying to place them into a box. Right. Instead of letting them place themselves in whatever box they choose to be in. But yes, yeah, so science. you want, huh? I said that's the joy of science. That's your it. imagination can go wherever. You can start a project or an experiment, and something sparks. Like I wonder what would happen if I do this, right? And move on to another thing, and you may find something profound. Right. I think a lot of times, a lot of our theories and stuff in science is someone who just questions something. You questioned it, and you were like, hmm, I wonder about that. And I'm going to dedicate some years of my life to it. <laughs> figure some it out. years. Yes. Yeah, that, that's the thing with science. It's going to be some years to, like, make it a theory or whatever. But, yeah, you're going to take some time. Figure it out. But, yeah, I want to know more about your mentoring and what you're doing with the young girls. Can you tell us what you're doing out there? Um, so part of the thing that, um, I'm interested in is mentorship. Like I mentioned, excuse me. Um, and so being a part of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, there is an initiative known as Delta Gems, um, Delta Academy. And so my time here in New Jersey, I volunteered with them as well as when I was in Connecticut, um, with the Hartford chapter, um, as well. And so what the goal is, is to take young girls um, and introduce them to science, technology, mathematics, mm-hmm. and now the arts um, at a young age to try to increase their self-esteem. And if we think back to the question would ask them about how the transition into UConn was, um, and I don't know, Kat, if you felt the same way, but I did kind of experience some self-doubt in mm-hmm. my ability to perform at the level of my counterparts because I didn't have that exposure. Right. Um, and so a part of the mentoring program is to increase that self-esteem to allow the girls to know that you can do whatever you put your mind to. And just as you have to sit in the classroom and learn those same words that the teacher is giving, everyone's ears are catching. So everyone's learning at the same time. So don't be intimidated um, and don't be ashamed to ask questions. Um, So introducing different scientific techniques, different processes, um, different um, engineering experiments, um, as well as exposing them to the arts going to different plays and productions. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah, exactly what you said. At UConn, I mean, that was just so different and in the middle of nowhere. And I just, I, I for me, I couldn't take it. I know you you <laughs> did it. You were strong. But I was just like, this is overwhelming. You know, I don't belong here. And um, sometimes I wish I stayed. But, you know, it's one of those things that it's like, I don't know. I think it's definitely a learning experience. Oh, though. yeah. Is it is. It's definitely a learning experience. <laughs> but um yeah, so it's good that you're doing that and you're out there mentoring. I think young girls and young guys, we all I'm sorry, they all because I'm not young anymore, but they all need somebody who can help yeah, them. We're still young. <laughs> I'm holding on to that. <laughs> I, I try, but then when I, I was talking to some elementary kids uh, the uh, just yesterday, I forgot what I mentioned, and they gave me such a blank stare, and I was just like, "Okay." And high school kids, I think I mentioned a beeper or something. I was talking to high school, and they were just like, "What?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh man, I'm showing my age." <laughs> but <laughs> but yes, yeah, so um, but yeah, being able to mentor and have exposure—that's what's up. So um, we're almost out of time. I told you 30 minutes would go fast. So one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is um, what do you do for fun? What do you do outside of science that, you know, is something that's fun that you just enjoy to do? Right now, it's going to be so cliche, but I enjoy being a mommy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How, how old is your baby boy? Uh, he's just about six months. Yeah. Next week he'll be six months old. Um, so that's fun. Right now, um, I also enjoy doing things like crocheting. So I think it's just, you know, those intricate fine motor skills that I like to try to maintain. Mm. So um, we still yeah. young, but you talking about maintaining your fine motor skills. <laughs> I got to keep the mind strong. Ah. Okay. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there that we were just talking about age, and then you just you just threw yourself under the <laughs> and just hanging out. I like to hang with friends. I like to be silly, like to dance, just have a good time, enjoy life, not be so serious all the time. Okay, so um, last thing I'm gonna say is you know Chanel is from California, just like I am. Went to school in the South, just like I did. Ended up on the East Coast. I did not do that. But, Chanel, if there is anyone out there, any students who were thinking, I don't know what to do, maybe I should be an MD, maybe I should do PhD, but I really like, you know, what she said about biofilms and bacteria. Like, what would you tell a student who is curious about science and might be interested in what you're doing? Like, what would you tell a student about to with that? I would tell them to explore um, regardless of what stage of life you're in, there are programs out there for everyone. Um, summer research programs, if you're a high school student, you can always look into upper bound, inroads, things of that nature. If you're currently in school and not sure of what you want to do, summer research experiences. That's one thing that I did not do while I was at Stillman that I wish I would have done because it gives you the opportunity, one, to travel different places and be on different college campuses. <coughs> but also exposes you to different aspects of research, be it in the medical field or in the laboratory sciences. So take advantage of what's out there. Um, meet people. Ask someone what they do for a living and then try to keep in touch with them. Send an email periodically and you'll be amazed and astonished at how willing people are 
to help you. That's very, very true. So um, just want to tell my audience, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of In the Know with Kat Bobineau. If you have any questions for Dr. Chanel Adams, you can send them to me and I will send them along to her. So thank you again for being a part of the show, Chanel. I really appreciate it. And until next week. <laughs>